The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Recently, we've had the good fortune to speak with the directors of several of Netflix's new documentaries, including Margaret Brown, director of Descendant, who talked to us about her beautifully layered and timely portrait of the descendants of the slave ship Clotilda. We also spoke with Tamana Ayazi and Marcel Metelzefen, directors of In Her Hands, which follows the courageous young mayor of an Afghan town who fights for women's rights against the backdrop of the country's takeover by the Taliban. We also spoke with Elvis Mitchell, director of Is That Black Enough for You? His celebration of black cinema in the late 1960s and the 70s. And upcoming, director Chris Smith will be joining us to discuss his new documentary, Senior, featuring Robert Downey Jr. in tribute to his late father, the pioneering filmmaker Robert Downey Sr. Be sure to look for these conversations in our feed and watch the films on Netflix. Descendant in Her Hands and Is That Black Enough for You are available now, and Senior debuts on Netflix on December 2nd. Mark your calendars. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to David Siv, the director of Bad Axe. The film had its world premiere at the 2022 South by Southwest Film Festival, where it won the festival's Audience Award and a special jury recognition. It also won the Audience Award at the Traverse City Film Festival and the jury prize at the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival. Recently, the film received the Critics' Choice Documentary Award for Best First Documentary Feature. Born and raised in Bad Axe, Michigan, David made his directorial debut in 2018 with his award-winning short film, Year Zero. Bad Axe is his documentary feature debut. I remember I saw the film soon after its premiere at South by Southwest, and I just really fell hard for it. I've been interested in what it was like behind the scenes for a family running a restaurant during the pandemic. That always struck me as a really interesting story, potentially. And then along came Bad Axe, and it turned out to, of course, not only be that, but so much more. It's one of those rare films that's both intimate in scale, because it is focusing on one family. But by the end, through what happens over the course of filming, it ends up just being this huge, sprawling story, a truly epic American saga. The fact that David is in the film, he's isolating with his family in Bad X during the pandemic, and then his role, as well as the film itself, becomes part of the story, makes this whole thing much richer and even more fascinating. Having David on the podcast gave me the opportunity to go that much deeper into the story, and I truly enjoyed speaking with him and finding out more about his amazing family. Bad Axe, which is being released by IFC Films, is available for streaming on Prime Video, Apple TV, and numerous other platforms. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Twitter at TopDocsPod. And now, my conversation with David Siv, the director of Bad Axe. David Siv, welcome to Top Docs. Really happy to be here today. Thank you for having me. You bet. And congratulations on Bad Axe, which is truly one of the film highlights of the year. I absolutely love the film. Oh, thank you. Can you give us a brief log line of the film? Bad Axe is essentially a portrait of the year 2020 told through 
the lens of my Cambodian Mexican American family and us trying to keep our restaurants, our American dream alive in the face of everything 2023 at us. Pandemic, racial reckoning, having to deal with our own intergenerational trauma of my father surviving the killing fields. It's all of that. So for people who haven't seen the film yet, Bad Axe is set at your family's restaurant, Rachel's of Bad Axe in Bad Axe, Michigan, during the pandemic. And in the opening scene, your sister Jacqueline, who's very involved in the day-to-day -day running of the restaurant, sits at the counter after closing time and reads from a rather long typed letter from a, quote, very angry customer, unquote, someone who's eager to explain why your family's wrong about things such as COVID and Donald Trump, and in fact, just really wrong for speaking their minds about issues that this letter writer seems to think fly in the face of quote unquote, traditional American values. And at one point, the letter writer says, you could return to Cambodia for opportunity. Cambodia being the country that your father grew up in and escaped from during the Khmer Rouge genocide in the late 70s. And the writer finishes by saying, we won't be choosing to eat at Rachel's any longer. And then your sister says to you, to the camera, everything that we were afraid of by sharing our family story is happening. Now, clearly, this scene is here to set up the stakes of the film. The fate of the restaurant could be in jeopardy, given this kind of response by a, a customer. I'd like to hear from you, besides this issue of the setting up the stakes, what are all the other things about this scene, this moment, the letter, and your sister's reading of it that stand out to you? To me, it, it really just sets up the tone of the entire film. And also, it kind of addresses every theme that's touched on in the film. The call to activism, wanting to open up this idea of American values to include that of my family's ideas of American values, being as, just as American as any other community member at Bad X. You get a taste that this is a story of a refugee family, that being my dad and and I think you get a sense it's the American dream story just based on this letter. It did so many things. And I think for me, structurally, it also, because the first half of the film is very much like a slice of life piece and just really getting to know these human beings being my family as the well-rounded people they are, just as they're trying to navigate the early days of the pandemic. What I hope it did is it sits in the back of the audience's mind. And while you're watching the first half of the film, you're waiting for the shoe to drop. We're eventually going to come back to this letter somehow. It's just like even in Goodfellas, right? At the beginning where Joe Pesci and De Niro and Henry Hill, they're all standing over a trunk. And like, you know, we're going to come back to that point. You're waiting for something to happen where the story is going to arrive back at this consequential fork in the road. Another thing it did for me was it showed the overwhelming patience that your family has for hearing out these other views, even if they contain some pretty objectionable things, which this letter clearly does, she treats it really seriously. Yeah, I mean, patience, I think, is something that we've all had to try and have over the years of living in Bad Axe, Michigan, especially being the only Cambodian Mexican family and probably a 25-mile radius, 30-mile radius. It's like in the film where Jacqueline says that my parents, they had to bite their tongue and they just show up to work and kept their heads down and they didn't say anything. And 
that's why the restaurant was able to succeed. That's like very much like the model minority myth. But I think with, you know, my generation, then I say that like that include my sister and how we feel about that is it's kind of like we've been quiet for too long. We've been patient for too long and we need to speak up against this because this isn't right. This is not traditional American values, right? Our family, I feel like in so many ways, like encapsulates what we call traditional American values. And we want to have a voice and we want to be seen at just as American as our neighbor is. Patience, some, but you can only have it so much to a certain point. Absolutely. And I think the whole rest of the film is a kind of response to that. And I definitely want to get into that in more detail later on. But I want to stick with some of the early scenes for a moment. There's one scene in particular between you and your sister, Jacqueline. This occurs, I think, pretty soon after you've all started isolating together in Bad Axe at the beginning of the pandemic in March 2020. Jacqueline asks you basic question, why are you filming? And you say, I have a lot of free time. And she responds, you can work at the restaurant. And she gives this wry smile. And I was so intrigued by that smile. And I just wanted to hear what you thought was behind that smile. Jacqueline is always about recruiting people and having them work at the restaurant. And I think it was playful more than anything. That's like, well, you can come work with me there now. And don't get me wrong. I grew up popping out at the restaurant. I still do dishes sometimes when I go back there when they're too busy and need to get caught up. So I think it was more of like, come work with me then. You have all this free time. Like you might as well be doing something. So I think that it was a reference to that. (laughs) Yeah. And it, it made me wonder what your relationship to the restaurant has been like all those years growing up and even now. The restaurant has always meant so much to me because I think it just represents decades of hard work and my family's American dream. My relationship with the restaurant is after I graduated from college, I was privileged enough to be able to move out to LA and not have to work at the restaurant. And the reason for that is because my sisters did. They continued to stay home and they continued to look after the place. And that gave me the opportunity to go pursue my own career and dreams of being a filmmaker. And for that, I will always be so grateful for my sisters for doing that and and allowing me to pursue my dreams. Having said that, growing up in the restaurant, it's just as I'm sure you can imagine where, you know, weekends were spent doing dishes and we never got paid anything, nor did we ever expect to. It was a family run business. I was in the back doing dishes. Jacqueline was out front cooking and Raquel, she would be waiting on tables. That was just what it took to get the restaurant to where it is today. We all had to work together. The restaurant has always meant so much to me. And I think I've really learned to appreciate it even more as I get older and older, just looking at what the restaurant was able to provide, not only for myself, but for my whole entire family. Yeah, it's funny because you talking about going to LA and pursuing film, I sort of read into that smile partly this idea that you probably do have a slightly different relationship to the restaurant because you did pursue these dreams. And so the idea of you working at the restaurant now, it's kind of like you've moved beyond that. Yeah, I think it is a little bit, now that I'm thinking about a little bit more into that, because I don't want to say like I've moved on from that, but I chose a career where I can't go home and work every weekend at the restaurant. You know, my sisters do, and they live in Michigan, so it's proximity. And I don't want to say I've moved on from that point because look, 
when I go back, I still have to clean the bathrooms. We have a big poster of Bad X in there, you know, with the South by Southwest awards. And when customers see me like mopping up the bathroom, they'll be like, aren't you the director of that movie? And I'll be like, yeah, they still have to help out around here. I'm still a member of the family. But no, you're right. Like I, I'm not someone who has to dedicate my life to it like my sisters do. Yeah, I for me, there was just a lot of love in that because she's gently ribbing you, but she's yeah. also acknowledging it's okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I have a big sister, so I kind of got that. <laughs> you kind of got that, yeah. And also it gets to this idea of roles in the family. And I think mm -hmm. you're the filmmaker. And like that, we see through the course of the film that that is a role to be played in the family here. Absolutely. And there's another exchange with Jacqueline where it's during the pandemic, mm -hmm. doing takeout. It's a very slow day in the restaurant. She says it's like the worst in five years. And she expresses this fear that the bad times for the family may be coming back. The bad times from when yeah. your mom and dad first started up a donut shop and things were tough. But then you say from behind the camera, I think we'll be okay. For me, that was an indication of maybe one of the roles that you play in the family, which is some people are the worriers. I have those in my family. And some people are the calming influence. It's going to be okay. So I was just curious if that has yeah, been the role that you play. Now, can I, I love the nuance that you really pick up. I, I can just tell you such an observational eye because you're right. That's exactly the role I play in particular to my relationship with Jacqueline. My mom and I are like the voices of optimism in the family and try to always keep the good energy and keep the good vibes going among everyone. When I say Jacqueline, I, I think it'll be okay. I did truly believe everything will be okay. And I also know that helps for her to hear that coming from me because that's what she always heard from me growing up is a positive energy. So you sort of anticipated my next question, which is from the film, you seem maybe to be more like your mom rather than your dad in some ways. In what ways would you say you take after your mom and your dad? I love this question because it, sometimes it's something I think about. I was like, how am I like my mom and how am I like my dad? I feel like I, I'm someone who's able to take the best of both of them. But my mom, she's just such a beaming light and I am a mama's boy. <laughs> I, have, I have no shame admitting that. I always try to, I think, see the good things in life. And I, and I think it's because of her. And with my dad, he's so passionate and so resilient. will never take no for an answer. I feel like that has so much shaped of who I am, not only as a filmmaker, but as a person. I think back to what he had to go through, which are things I could never even have imagined or things you and I will never see. But it sticks with me like if my dad can come to this country and against all odds, survive a genocide and work hard and build his American dream, then I certainly can do that with that approach to my own career as being a filmmaker. I can definitely see that rubbing off. Thank you. Early on, you're filming your dad chopping wood, and he's another one who asks, why are you filming everything, David? And your answer is, mm -hmm. I just think it's an important moment in history right now, and I just want to document everything. And then he follows up and says, why are you filming me? And you say, I don't know. And I think that's an interesting moment because it seems to show that your dad doesn't connect himself to historical events in the way that you do, because you see this larger story taking shape 
through your family. And in fact, later, your girlfriend, Kat, is interviewing you again. Why do you want to make this documentary? And you say, I don't really know yet. Right now, it's observing the story of our family, how this pandemic is affecting us. And then this is the key part for me. But I always felt my family had an important story to share, especially my dad. His stories about surviving Cambodia have shaped who I am as a filmmaker. Even back then, when you were shooting your dad chopping wood, in your filmmaker gut, were you already thinking, my dad chopping wood is more than just a shot of a guy chopping wood? That there's the potential to tell a larger American story here. I have to go back to kind of what was going through my mind at that point. You know, filmmaker moves home, unemployed, have a lot of free time, right? And I did always know I wanted to share my family's story because if I look at my parents' story, Mexican American woman, a Cambodian refugee who achieved the American dream and, and of all places, Bad Axe, Michigan. That was a story I, I thought I was always going to write a script about. So in those early days of the pandemic, when my dad sitting down, going through pictures, there was a lot of those times where I wanted him to, and my mom and Jacqueline, tell their story for the sake that I thought this was just kind of research for me to write this script that I would eventually take the time to do over the pandemic. But then... The other side of that is this sort of instinctual filmmaker, but also just the role I play in the family of being the filmmaker and just always recording moments. Because look, during those early days of the pandemic, nobody knew what was going to happen day to day, week to week. The pandemic was such an uncertain time. In those early days, I knew it was an important time and I didn't necessarily know I was making a documentary then, but I wanted to have these memories to really hold on to and to capture during this important time, really for myself and for my family. Like my dad chopping wood, it's like, why are you even filming this? Part of it's like, well, I don't know, but I want to be able to show my kids like, this is how we used to keep our house warm. And this is what your grandpa used to do. He would chop wood. That was just part of his life. And it turns out that this whole American dream story I always been wanting to share was unfolding it itself in front of me in real time with all this call it home videos or whatever it is that I was shooting because the intention wasn't to make a documentary at the beginning. And I think it was like after the George Floyd movement, when we started getting these initial comments and our livelihood was beginning to be threatened, this light bulb went off that, oh, we're still fighting so hard to keep our American dream alive in the face of everything that's going on around us. The pandemic, this racial reckoning, really politically divided nation, right? It was all of these things that helped me realize like, oh, if I want to tell the story of my family's American dream, it has to include what the American dream looks like today. And there's nothing more American than chopping wood. Sets up that flavor, that nuance, because you wouldn't think of this, you know, middle-aged Cambodian man keeping his house warm by chopping wood. Like a lot of people just wouldn't think that, but like, that's how we keep our house warm. That's part of our experience of being in Bad Axe in being American is we chop wood to keep our house warm. <laughs> One of the great things about the film is how there are multiple characters, for lack of a better word, in the film who are all given primary place in the film. So they don't feel like secondary characters. They're really quite fully realized. One of them is your brother-in-law, Mike, who's married to your sister, Jacqueline. 
there's an early scene where you're riding along in his car as he's delivering food from the restaurant and you're chatting mm -hmm. and he describes growing up in Bad Axe as a place you couldn't wait to leave. I was just curious to hear about your experience growing up in Bad Axe and if that statement applied to you as well. Absolutely. I think what Mike said during that scene, because Mike was like born and raised in Bad Axe and the way he was describing it, I think so much feels like what everyone experiences being in a small town and wanting to get out. It's one of those places where you can't wait to move away growing up and get out and, and seeing the world, right? But then Mike changes his tone and then he says, well, it's also like one of the best places too. It's a sense of community where everyone knows everyone. And that makes Bad Axe something that a lot to offer in terms of being a great place to raise a family and have that sense of community. So I, I felt like everything he was saying was like so accurate to not only how I felt growing up, but like all of my friends and everyone, you know, it, it's that small town mentality where you want to get out of there. But at the same time, something is always pulling you back. It's that sense of home, that sense of community, right? And it does bring people back in. So yeah. later on, we learn, you know, Mike and Jacqueline are moving back to Bad Axe to raise their family. Yeah. It's not too surprising given this kind of duality that you described. The mixed feelings. Bad Axe is a character in the film. It largely is a character off screen. But I wanted to ask a couple of more demographic questions, sure. geographic questions. Where is Bad Axe geographically in the state of Michigan? And is it a rural place? Is it a small town? So in Michigan, we use our hand to describe the state. And if you're wondering where Bad Axe Michigan is, it's located right on the thumb of Michigan. So it's about two hours north of Detroit. And I would definitely describe Bad Axe as a rural, small town, like farming. I, I believe it's what so many people in the community do for a living. It's like we say in the film, there's like two or three stoplights. There's the movie theater that has two showings and there's a Walmart there. We recently got a Meyer. It's your typical small Midwest rural town, but one with a, with a lot of charm. In terms of politics, you know, Michigan's a swing state. It has historically mm -hmm. been a blue state, but it was one of the crucial swing states that went for Donald Trump in 2016. How heavily is Huron County, which is the county that Bad Axe is in, how heavily is Huron County sort of Trump country? And to what extent would you say America's increasingly tribal politics and divided electorate are reflected in Bad Axe? I want to say that Huron County is heavily conservative. I don't know the exact numbers. It's either 70, 30 or 80, 20, something like that. It leans very heavy one way politically. As far as being a representation of the U.S., I think it absolutely is. And I'm not saying that in a sense even politically, but I'm saying that there are so many other communities and towns just like Bad Axe, Michigan, where... There is a political imbalance, but people do find a way to thrive together and to cohabitate. And places like Bad Axe, Michigan is no exception to that. These small towns, like we can't overlook them. We can't ignore them because I think they are so representative of the United States as a whole. And with the film Bad Axe, it's important to put the microscope on a family like ours and what we're going through in Bad Axe, Michigan. What is a BIPOC family, a multicultural family? How do they navigate 
being in these communities and being a part of the communities, thriving in these communities. And that's why I say bad actions, I think, representative of what I hope America can be as far as finding ways where families like ours can thrive and be viewed at as just as American as anyone else and have their small businesses be successful. But there's a lot of work that needs to be done as well, too, right? I hope that's what the film provides at the end of the day is like, we can't give up on places like Bad Axe, Michigan. We just can't because to give up on places like Bad Axe, Michigan is to give up, I, I think to give up on our country and truly believe that. And so if you see our family still has hope and can still come out on top in this community, I hope that provides hope for just our country in general. Yeah. While at the same time, I think you're showing in the film that some things got worse during the pandemic. The yeah, pandemic absolutely. accelerated or exacerbated certain issues and divisions. And that's why when I say it's representative of the whole country, because these are issues the whole country is going through and it's representative of it for better or for worse. And I think you see both of that play out in Bad Axe, right? You see the best parts of Bad Axe, but you also see what's underneath as you peel back the layers and that racism and what our family goes through, like these exist in these small towns all across the country. So back to your sisters. We talked about Jacqueline. I want to ask about Raquel. She's finishing her final semester at the University of Michigan. She also works pretty much constantly at the restaurant. And yep. at one point you ask her, are you going to take over the restaurant one day? And this kind of becomes a recurring theme throughout the film as different family members ask her that. And her answer is usually one version of, I don't know. And so there is this theme throughout the film of who's going to eventually take over the restaurant from your parents right. when they step back. It's going to be Jacqueline, Raquel, both of them, neither. It's interesting that succession in family businesses, whether they're a family restaurant or a family farm or a hardware store or whatever, is mm -hmm. frequently a big question mark. Did your family ever sit down to come up with a succession plan? No, I don't think we ever really sat down and talked about like what the succession plan is. There have been ideas that have been passed around over the years, whether Jacqueline was going to take over or maybe my parents would sell the business one day in the future. These were all just discussions, but I felt like it was always changing every time we had these conversations. It wasn't until Raquel in the pandemic and her moving back home, and even after the fact of where the film came out now is where they're seems to be a clear succession plan. And that plan being Raquel has really embraced her role in the restaurant and being a leader there and running the place to a point where I think she no longer feels it as a burden, but she's truly grateful for this opportunity and everything the restaurant has provided for her and our family. And so now when we have these conversations, I think it becomes more about okay, is this something like Raquel, like you want to continue doing? Do you want to just continue doing it for a few years? You know, just questions. There's, I don't think anything solidified in place. And so as of now, we know Raquel enjoys doing it. She's making a good living being able to do that. Jacqueline is still able to help out. So who knows? It could be that Jacqueline and Raquel end up 
taking over full time and running the place and my parents will 100% retire or yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's an evolving conversation, but I'll say that that's what it's looking like right now is it's really up to Raquel. Well, she certainly seems up to the task. <laughs> yeah. As her older brother, MSB on behalf of my parents and Jacqueline is that we're just all so proud of her. Just seeing her like step into a leadership role like that. Because she's a baby growing up. We always treated her like a baby. And now that my parents and Jacqueline and I, we've all been on the road promoting the film. The only reason why we're able to do that is because of Raquel and Austin and Skylar, because they've all stepped up and taken on this huge responsibility of watching over the restaurant and making sure it's running properly while we're all away. It makes us all really proud to see how much they've all grown into these young, responsible leaders and, and adults over the past couple of years. So I want to go back to your dad. The story at the heart of Bad Axe is about your dad and his survival and escape from the genocide in Cambodia perpetrated by the, the brutal Khmer Rouge regime in the late 70s. You choose to present this story in two parts, basically. Part one is in the yeah. film's first act, and then part two of this story is in the latter part of the film. And I was just curious why you broke it up the way you did. I think the first part, the reason why I wanted to include it in the first act of the film is because we have to understand where my dad is coming from as far as how he's approaching this pandemic and how he's manifesting in these spheres. And because he's been in a country that has fallen apart before and has seen what the worst of humanity can do to each other, though that may seem exaggerated to us. To him, those fears are very, very real. He's someone who lost seven members of his family's life, didn't even get a chance to say bye to his own dad when he lost him. And I think what my father was so scared about in those early days of the pandemic is what would happen if it happened to one of us or even to him? Because so many people in the pandemic who passed away, they never got to say bye to their loved ones. They died alone. And I think setting up his background from Cambodia begins to peel back this layer that this is a man who holds so much trauma and it affects so much of how he sees the world and how he's dealing with his own fears and anxiety with the pandemic. And then bringing up the history of Cambodia back in the end, now you're seeing, he says that I've seen what the power of hate and evil can do to a country. And he has like, having come from a country where he witnessed People brutally murdered. And I think he said he witnessed over two dozen people executed over the course of his life from the time of being a 16-year-old to an 18-year-old. When he's seen these white supremacists, these neo-Nazis, with how much hate they have in their heart and that they live so close by to us, he knows how powerful that hate can be and what it can do to an individual's mind. And I think that's why it was important to include that piece of Cambodia in the end, because it's bringing, again, his point of view to like how he's viewing America today. He has so much hope, I think, in the end. When you see him raise that American flag and talking about how he felt when he finally escaped to Cambodia, it's so hopeful of a story. There's so much resilience you feel coming from this man. And it had to be told in the end because how are we going to make it past this year together? And the way he sees it is that if I can make it out of Cambodia, then our family can certainly make it out of 2020. I think another thing his experience shows is how 
his early experiences as a youth and the trauma he experienced cascades through the family. He mm -hmm. and your sister Jacqueline especially, there's, of course, a huge amount of love there, but also there's a right. lot of friction, which sometimes boils over into outright rage. They have some pretty epic fights in the film. But, you know, your dad is impulsive, but he's also quite self-reflective and introspective. And so at one point, he wonders out loud whether he has PTSD from what he experienced as a boy in Cambodia. Mm -hmm. And it did leave me wondering whether there could be some issue of intergenerational trauma in the family. Absolutely. And intergenerational trauma is something I've recently been learning about, and it instilled new to me. But the way it works is right. Everything my dad has had to go through in his life has very much affected how he sees the world. His post-traumatic stress affects who he is as a human being, who he is as a business owner, who he is as an American, and then who he is as a father. We were thankfully raised by both of our parents equally, but you have to think of, okay, if my dad approaches being a father with all the trauma that he has having survived the genocide in Cambodia, that's going to have an effect on how you raise your children and how they see the world. Like I said, it, this intergenerational trauma is so new to me and very well aware that like my siblings and I bear the weight of that in some ways, just based on how we were raised. But it's up to us to recognize that and to break that cycle. The film does take place during the pandemic, and it's also taking place during the murder of George Floyd and the racial reckoning that followed, along with the Black Lives Matter protests that spread across the world, even to bad acts. So in this sequence, one of the restaurant's employees turns out as an organizer of BLM protests in town. This kind of precipitates everyone in the family having to make up his or her mind whether to participate or not. Jacqueline does make the point that your parents succeeded by assimilating, running the restaurant, keeping a low profile, biting their tongue, but she says she doesn't think she can be that way. This, of course, raises a big theme, which is how your family's story connects with the broader American themes, including to what extent will American society be able to deal with the fact that people who come to this country have a voice and will at some point, usually in the second generation, I guess, I would say, start to express that voice. So your sister decides she's going to go to the protest and participate. Other family members make their decision. You choose to be a filmmaker, which is <laughs> what you're doing. You're making this film. You're going to go and document the family at the protest. That's your voice. And it seems like this BLM protest in Bad Axe was for the family a kind of Rubicon, a line that was crossed that, for better or worse, marks a new chapter in your family's history. A hundred percent. Absolutely. Because something like this had never happened in Bad Axe, Michigan before. We spoke out very little up to this point, you know, on, on Facebook and stuff, but actually be able to physically really take a stand. It was this point of no return for us and one that's 
not only important in our family's history, but in the history of, of bad acts. I feel this being the first time people were taking a stand against social injustices and having a platform to be on. It was, it was really incredible. So fast forwarding a bit, when we get to October 2020, an inner title appears on the screen that says you edited and released a fundraising trailer for the film and that the trailer received immediate criticism in Bad Axe. And then this is when we return to the letter that Jacqueline was reading at the beginning of the movie. First of all, how prepared were you for the blowback that the trailer got in Bad Axe? Was that a surprise? It was surprising what people were saying. I think we were all expecting that there would be people who would object to the trailer and object to our family telling our story and naming it Bad Axe. We certainly did not expect to receive racist letters and threatening phone calls. Those are things we just, we realistically did not expect to happen. Social media backlash, sure. Of course, we were expecting that, but I don't think we were expecting it to the extent of what we actually received, though. We then see your family reacting to this blowback. This is the first time we see you defending the film, essentially, as your, quote, love letter to Bad Axe. But your dad and Mike, your sister's husband, seem skeptical of the film as a love letter yeah. to Bad Axe. I think when I say, this is my love letter to Bad Axe, I think that was a knee-jerk reaction of me trying to defend my actions to my dad, like a kid being yelled at him. No, dad, this is my love letter. <laughs> and when he says, you need to rewrite that love letter, I think during that time when I started making these early cuts of the film, which my family did see, the message of love, I don't think really came through in the way that it does now. I think I was frustrated, just like so many other people in our country. And I wanted to be a filmmaker that got on my soapbox and, and spoke about the larger issues at hand in our country, preaching to the echo chambers. Having said that, the film representing that, I don't think portrayed bad acts in a light where there would be productive conversation to ensue after people get a chance to watch the film. I think those early cuts of the film were very much come out of the place of anger more than anything. And so I really have to credit my family and my editors and even my producers, you know, this question always came back to me. It was like, why are you making this film in the first place? And if I'm honest, when I first set out to make the film, it wasn't to point out all the injustices that were going on in America and to change the world, right? It had to come back to, I wanted to share my family's story. And that was simply because the love I had for them and the admiration I have for our resilience. And I had to come back to that in the editing room, really, as this question of why I was making a film. You see, when my girlfriend, she's not my wife, she sits me down and we need to talk about this love letter concept. I take a moment to reflect and say, well, it's a love letter to bad acts because for all that bad acts is getting the bad, it's so much shaped who our family is. And so I hope at the end, viewers will understand that is it a love letter to bad acts? Sure, but it is ultimately a love letter to my family more than anything. I think the film very much does explore all the issues I wanted it to, but it does it in a way where it humanizes these issues. You see the love I have for my family and it comes through just in the imperfect individuals they're painted as, but those are the people that I love. And this is us navigating 
America and trying to work through these issues ourselves, I think when audience members get a chance to see that, they no longer look at us. And I can say this from experience because we've had the chance to show it in Bad Axe, Michigan, that they no longer look at us as being like this other side. They begin to look at us as like their community members. They're seeing like a real human face behind these issues. And I'm so glad that at the end, I did decide to make a film that stemmed from love. Had I not do that, I don't know if the film would spark the dialogue and the conversation that it has been with audiences. I think I would have turned off half the audiences that have seen this film already. But I think that's what's so important, right? If I wanted to make a film that could create change, and again, I didn't know if this film would create change when I first started making it, but in order for there to be change, we need to be able to look at each other as humans, as fellow community members, and we need to be able to have a dialogue and a conversation with one another. And witnessing that firsthand gives me so much hope, not only as what the power of cinema is, but there is hope for our country if we can just begin to look at each other as human again and not be ugly. I think one of the great things about the film is it's an invitation for dialogue with the audience about these issues and the fact that you're in it having these conversations with your family is a clue to us that, you know, this is something that's open to discussion. I think that's really one of the truly refreshing, exciting things about the film is that dialogue is baked into yeah. it. Speaking of dialogue, there's a particularly painful dialogue that takes place. There's a series of sort of shocking events in the film. People will see the film and see what those are, but there's a threatening call that's made to the restaurant. Your mom takes the call. You're there filming. And this is after the trailer has come out. Your mom, who you described earlier as kind of the peacemaker in the family, the peacekeeper, she turns to you and says, David, you don't live here. You have no clue. And then you defend yourself saying you grew up here like everyone else. And you tell the family what happened today is going to happen when the film comes out. Do you want to carry through with this? And then there's a dialogue about that. So I wanted to ask two things. One is, as your mother's son, how did it feel to be on the receiving end of this? It must have been hard to deal with. But also as the director of the film, what was it like to give up some measure of control in this moment and empower your family to have a say over the film? When my mom says that to me, she's so right, because whatever happens with this film, I get to essentially go back to New York at the end of the day, and they're the ones that have to put up with the hangover of it. As a filmmaker in me, and as a family member, I knew I wasn't going to quit making this film. It was going to be made no matter what. But where I did have to gain my family's trust and where I did have to empower them was when it came to the decision of, can I put this film out there? Because had everyone not been on board with putting the film out there for the world to see, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have put the film out there. I would have kept it for our family and for ourselves. And we had the conversation of maybe we wait a few years to share our story when maybe things are a little less divided in our country. But I think after the family got a chance to see the film and see that it did touch on all these issues in such a humanizing way that could spark dialogue and conversation, they all agreed that it was important to get our story out there and to get our story out there now, not to wait now while these issues are still at the forefront of our nation. 
it took a lot of conversation. Again, being very collaborative with my family, I always let them watch every cut and you see how opinionated my family is. And so everyone has their own notes and own opinions of what the film should be. As a director, it was important for me to really listen to everyone from my mom, my dad, to Jacqueline, to Raquel, everyone. Their imprints are, are on the final cut of this film. And I'm glad they are. As a director at the end of the day, those moments where they might not be as proud of how their scene are represented. I think once we were able to put the film together and I was able to show them like why this is important. People need to see you as imperfect human beings. They need to see you for you are in order to have that relatability and people seeing themselves in us. I think that's when they realize like, no, like you were really proud of all the choices that were made in the edit room and the final cut of making this. Another big emotional scene in the film is between Raquel, your mom and your dad toward the end of the film. Mm -hmm. And this comes after Raquel has been followed, leaving the restaurant late at night by some guys in a truck. We don't know exactly who they are or what they have in mind, but it's it's scary. So the three of them are in the kitchen having this conversation. It's very emotional. It's an incredible scene. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts about that scene. That scene when the trucks are following and, and we don't know who they are was really scary, obviously for my parents and for me, but imagine being Raquel, you know, she's like this 23 year old, hundred pound young woman who closes the restaurant by herself and she sees these trucks following her. It's terrifying. And my dad will say, and I think this is where a lot of parents relate to him. It's like, you will stop at nothing to protect your safety of your child. That's why he wants to see if he can catch who they are and see if he can track them down because like, I think that's what any father would do, right? And then the next day when they have that tough conversation, that emotional conversation, my parents are reminding Raquel, like, this is whether you like it or not, the cost of speaking up and responding to that call for activism. I don't think they're necessarily blaming Raquel in that scene as more so just letting her be aware that this is why they have the opinions that they have as far as when it came to speaking up in the community all these years prior. And I don't think my dad is necessarily trying to discourage her from speaking up there, but more so just informing her and, and, and trying to teach her as a father, be smart on how you use your voice. Maybe going up to neo-Nazis who have AR-15s and yelling in their faces isn't the smartest thing to do. I think he's just trying to protect her in that moment and let her realize like this is serious stuff. This isn't just on social media or whatever. You have people following you now and you have to watch your back. The other thing that I found just remarkable in that scene, and I think it's one reason everybody's in tears by the end of it, including the audience, by the way, is your parents acknowledge the difference between themselves and really people like them in terms of their immigrant journey and their children, the next generation. And they basically give your sister permission to fully own what it means to be an American. It's not something that they could do or felt comfortable doing, but they see the difference. And I think they're saying there may be a cost to it. You need to be careful, but we support you doing that. And so it's this passing of the torch that is just so admirable on their part. Thank you. Thank you. I've realized this over the course of making this film is that my siblings and our American dream 
is different from that of my parents. My parents, they just wanted to be able to support their family, put their kids through college, be able to make the house payments much more financial based, right? That's what their American dream was, where I think our generation, sure, it includes all these things, but it's also being able to have a voice. And I know I've said this a couple of times, but like opening up this idea of what the American experience is, because America is a country that is built on refugees and immigrants and our experiences matter and they are a part of the American experience. That's something I realized over the course of making this film about the American dream is it isn't just being able to live and get by, but it's also being able to have a voice and start dialogue and start change in your own communities. At the end of the movie, you ask your sister, Jacqueline, what did you think you learned this past year? And she says she didn't really learn anything new, just that some things were more cemented after this year. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think you learned in the past year that shaped you as a son, a brother, a man, and as a filmmaker? Wow, that's a deep question. Nine months ago, I had $101.99 in my bank account. I put every penny of my savings and max out all my credit cards to finish this film. We were 10 days away from our world premiere at South by Southwest. And prior to this, we were trying to get a sales agent and trying to find a distributor to go into the festival with and pretty much everyone passed on us. And that was so disheartening. Jacqueline, in fact, she wrote me a blank check and she told me, you need to take care of yourself. You earn this. I couldn't get myself to, to cash that check. And the reason for that is because I looked at how hard my parents had to work when they were my age in their late 20s with three children, a donut shop and taekwondo school, right? They were able against all odds to achieve this American dream. And going into this festival with nobody who wanted to pick up the film, I felt like every odd was against me as well, too. And... Thankfully, a week after a premiere, we were able to sell the film to IFC and be able to obtain distribution. In that moment, obviously a big sigh of relief because I could pay rent that month. But as I'm reflecting back on all this, I feel like I'm living my American dream right now. And at first, after we sold the film, I thought it was just because I was able to make a living as a filmmaker. I was able to do something where my parents didn't want me to go into it, but now they were proud that I was able to financially support myself. But now being on the road with this film and seeing how audience are reacting to it and seeing the conversations that are happening after people get a chance to shoot a film, I'm realizing that, sure, I'm living this American dream because I'm able to make a living as a filmmaker, but it's also because I'm seeing firsthand the conversations that are happening after people get a chance to see this film. And the first step into, you know, if we ever want to see change in this world is being able to have dialogue and be able to have conversation. And it's just so incredible when people come up to me after seeing the film and say how much they see themselves in our family. That representation is just so important. And the fact that they look at my family's experience as being as American as their own, that is the American dream, right? Is being able to have that voice to spark change. So that's why I say I feel like I'm living my American dream now. This film is also a film about a restaurant. So I can't let you go without asking you, what is your favorite dish on the menu at Rachel's A Bad Axe? 
I'm going to have to go with the half slab of ribs with a side of Brussels sprouts and french fries. We have really good ribs. That's usually my go-to, either that or Atlantic salmon with redskins and asparagus. That's like my second dish I go to, so. <laughs> wow. Two mouth-watering dishes. I can imagine people out there everywhere after they see your film, not only having those kinds of discussions you talked about, but maybe uh, making a road trip to Bad Axe, Michigan to visit the restaurant. Welcome anybody that wants to come by. Finally, if you can tell us what's up next for you. I've been developing a couple of projects. One of them is a documentary. One of them is a narrative feature. The documentary is a collection of Cambodian refugee stories surviving the killing fields and the genocide from 75 through 79, told through the visual medium of animation, though. And the narrative feature film is one I've been writing for a while based on my grandmother and the first day she arrived in the United States in 1979 as a widow with six children and just living in a church basement, just trying to navigate what it means to be American and American life. Thank you, David, so much. The film is beautiful. It's epic. It really does capture all the complexities of America. I think we all feel somehow really close to you and your family as a result of watching the film. And we wish you all and the restaurant nothing but the best. Thank you, Cap. Really grateful to be on here today. Do you have a recommendation for a documentary, Hidden Gem, a film that maybe doesn't get a lot of recognition that you'd like to spotlight? If I'm going to highlight a hidden gem, I'm going to recommend the documentary called Sam Now. It's been on the festival circuit this year. We were actually at a couple of festivals together and I recently got a chance to watch it and I absolutely love it. It is a heart-wrenching personal film that was filmed over the course, I think, of 20 plus years between a filmmaker who is a half-brother of the subject, Sam. And it's really a coming-of-age film, but told through the lens of Sam, who mother had walked out and abandoned him randomly when he was a teenager. And just the effects of that trauma it's had on him as he got into adulthood and just trying to navigate his own relationships and his own life. And it was such a special piece. It's kind of like if Boyhood was a documentary. I absolutely loved it and I highly recommend it. Mm -hmm.